so I think in those scenarios where we have an actual actionable item that we know is going to impact performance and we can use the output from CGM or a tech to help influence behavior change. And they trust some of the digital signals and so you've got a way to start to you know connect with them in a unique enough way. Same question, same answer, same intervention, but just um, almost spoken with a different language. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. We're also researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University, and we love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical strategies. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask, the sort of things that people are often debating out on their run or ride, talking about at a coffee shop afterwards, or jumping into social media or Dr. Google to figure out. So we'll take one of those topics, questions, and break it down, invite a guest expert in our A episode, uh, and an athlete or coach in our B episode to add their perspective on the topic. So how are things with you, Steph? Things are good, yeah, things are good. Uh, I am pretty happy actually. Saw one of my participants who gave me uh, some homebrew beer. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting um, stuck into that. Uh and yeah, study's going really well. Um, I do need just a couple more males for the amino acid beverage study, uh, and we still very much need um, plenty more uh, participants for the youth study uh, and the hydration uh, and prebiotic study. Like we've got a lot of studies going on, so yeah, basically yeah. anyone interested and the ultra, um, please yeah give us a, a message and we can send you in the right direction. Um, and also I should say, uh, you and I are both wiser now, I think we, uh, both had our birthdays in the last couple of weeks. So we how did. are you feeling? Uh, well, I got a nice present of COVID for my birthday. <laughs> you did. So, um, I, yeah, kids brought it home more that day. We didn't know till the next day. So we still celebrated the birthday as if there was no COVID around, but we yeah. quickly found out within 24 hours that that wasn't the case. <laughs> uh, so yeah, as people can probably hear, my voice has recovered Better. somewhat from last week's podcast, although the interview that we're doing was recorded last week. So yes. uh, I think my voice is a little bit croaky in that one as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, other than that, um, yeah, another birthday. I can't say too much about it got out for a mountain bike ride that day which was nice because then it was followed by about 10 days of isolation yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. but yes your birthday's within a week of mine Steph so yeah. what did you get up to for your birthday well my present was a prank before like, the right. day before my birthday so we've yeah. done really well <laughs> yeah yeah I was gonna say you had a better week this week uh, free yeah. beer rather than uh car <laughs> yes. smashed Exactly. And then, yeah, went to a place called Moondog in Preston, which is a oh, very, very nice. cool beer place. Yeah, and, I've never uh, been there, but is that the one with like a kind of like a pond with flamingos or something in the middle? It's got pool. Yeah, a massive yeah. pool in there. And um, the good thing is you can take your dogs. So uh, a okay. couple of the guys I worked with at the running company, they've got Kelpies. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Cooper 
um, my little cavoodle uh, got to come and the and the kelpie. So it's yeah, I think maybe they had more fun than uh, what we got up to. But <laughs> yeah, it was it was good, entertaining. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, today's episode, Steph, onto a new topic. We sort of got very specific in the last uh, couple of episode topics in terms of you know young athletes and and female athletes. Mm. But we're going to uh, broaden our scope a little bit more today. What's our episode and what's our topic? Yeah, we're up to episode thirty three A, and the question is: Can a continuous glucose monitor? Improve My Performance Nutrition, and we're joined by Dr. Dana Lease and Dr. David Martin. And um, I know I've been asked this question a lot about continuous glucose monitors, and we've seen it a lot in social media and uh, everywhere in the media. So, yeah, we thought this would be a, a good one. Yeah, and people might pick up on this and go, hang on a minute, didn't you say the topic was something different last week? And we did. Mm. Um, we, we started out this interview with with Dana and Dave, thinking we we're going to talk about wearables generally and touch on glucose monitors. Um, we didn't know how it was going to go. It's our first ever double guest episode, mm. uh, and things got a bit, bit out <laughs> of hand maybe at times, yes. shall we say. Uh, and as a result, we spent a lot of time on continuous glucose monitors and not much on other wearables, so we yes. decided to... Uh, rein in the topic a little bit and just focus on continuous glucose monitors or CGM uh, as it's often referred to. So that's that's why the change of topic, but the same guests. Yeah. Uh, we started out with certain questions and probably finished up with slightly different answers, uh, <laughs> but it was probably one of the more fun podcasts we've ever recorded. So that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get in now, Steph, into social media shout outs and questions. We've had mm. quite a few people contacting us via Instagram this week. Yeah, we did. It seems to go in those waves um, mm. a bit. So, yeah, a lot on, on Instagram. So we had uh, Carolyn Kavana. I hope I said that name right. Kavana, I think. Kavana. Yeah. yeah, so she um, gave us a couple comments. So commented on Claire Minahan's um, episode. Um, a true scientist. Thanks so much for this fantastic interview. Cutting through all the social media pseudoscience it, um, is is challenging for people. Uh, and Claire's clarity is so refreshing. And um, yeah, she she was really stoked with that one. And then she also enjoyed Hilary Stellingworth's episode, uh, commenting great interview, balanced approach, and I completely agree with the thinking here. There are too many variables and no conclusive data at this point um, to be able to give um, blanket recommendations um, and just, yeah, encouraging track your cycle, take notes so that you get a sense of how you may feel. Um, yep, and so those those episodes were the ones around whether nutrition needs should change across the menstrual cycle. Yeah, yes, yep. And then uh, we had uh, a pretty talented uh, triathlete that you work with, um, Alan, so and who we've had on uh, the podcast. So Emma Jeffcott on the physical, so she was on the physical performance show. And I reckon we were Emma's first podcast, right? So uh, not, not sure if we were the first podcast she's ever done, but yeah. I, um, thought, I thought she said that. We'll have to go yeah, back to, to the episode. Uh, anyway, she, she gave you a shout out, Al. So um, that's lovely. She's um, getting the benefits of working with you. Um, and then we had Michael McDonald. He thanked us for the interview again with Claire, so about the menstrual cycle um, and 
saying that Claire is incredibly talented in explaining a fairly murky topic. So really well done. Mm, um, totally agree. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Ryan Chan, who's been brilliant um, in helping us with a lot of feedback uh, and is a yeah great, great listener of our podcast. So thank you, Friend Ryan. Friend of the podcast, I think would say. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and he commented on, yeah, today's topic. So interested in this one, very much waiting um, for the continuous glucose monitors to be more commercially viable for recreational athletes because they're a bit pricey. Um, yeah, so current costs are, are high unless you have diabetes. So um, he has not had a chance to, to give it a go, but I think he's keen to listen about um, the potential uses. Yeah, and I think that's the great thing about this podcast is there's probably a lot of people out there going, I, I see all these continuous glucose monitors out there. I see, you know, sponsored athletes that are using them, talking about how great they are, mm-hmm. um, people saying it's, you know, kind of the future and, and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are expensive. So is it worth the money, worth the investment? Should I wait till the price comes down or are they not really worth it at all? So obviously we'll get into all of that today. Mm, yeah. Now, Steph, obviously I've been in isolation for the last 10 days or so, so I haven't been out and about and getting feedback, but you don't have that excuse. So you've been out and about and surely you've had some more comments, suggestions, questions or other feedback along the way. Have indeed, have indeed. I was lucky enough to get a lot of phone calls of happy birthday messages during the week, just like you would have. We're talking and about podcast feedback here, not not birthday calls. I know, but part of the birthday <laughs> oh, call. Oh, it's getting part to of it. it. Okay, okay, okay. Right. <laughs> so, um, Olivia I thought you're just pumping wants... yourself up for your birthday. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, Olivia wants from Adelaide, of course, uh, a good friend and um, sports dietitian down there. Uh, yeah, really enjoys listening to the podcast and, uh, um, gives you a big congrats, Al, because just says you, uh, you know, you speak really well and you um, can just summarise things um, exceptionally, which, um, yeah, I'm totally in agreement with that. So she appreciates your wisdom. Thank you, Liv. Yeah, there you go. And um, we had an Apple podcast review, yeah? Yeah, yeah, a new podcast review on Apple Podcasts from Kyle Dunn. Uh, he said, awesome, listen, great podcast with informative and real-life professionals. Has led me working to – led me to – working one-on-one with Alan to improve my knowledge and use of nutrition for performance. Uh, so he certainly has, and I've got an email in my inbox from you, Kyle, that I need to reply to. So I'll get to that straight after we finish this recording. Yeah, no excuses now. No, exactly right. It's out there. Um, and just a reminder, if you've got a, a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can get in touch with us via social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or if you have any other podcast feedback, suggestions, um, criticism, hopefully constructive, um, you can leave that there as well. And we are ready and you've been locked up. So, you know, um, you've you've had a lot of time to, to think. I know you've been busy, but I'm sure you're boiling up inside and you've got something to get off your chest. So what's your rant today? Steph, it hasn't been 10 days of lockdown seething about this. It's been about 10 years, probably longer actually, of frustration about this topic. Uh, and not quite so related to today's topic, but probably related to some of the ones we've talked about in, in recent times. It's when you use one of those food tracking apps, doesn't matter which one, 
like a my fitness pal and obviously there's heaps of others and then you you put in all your food okay we've talked about some of the advantages and disadvantages of doing that in the past you don't want to become obsessed with it or anything like that mm. but then you come to the exercise tracking part Steph and that's where things quickly go pear-shaped mm-hmm. so people go in there and track you know well-intentioned all their various bits of activity and then the system spits out this absolutely moronic term called net calories which is an absolutely useless piece of information that serves no useful purpose except to confuse and deceive people and give them a false sense of security with what they're doing i think sometimes Mm. um people probably know what i talk about if you ever use one of these apps you put in all the food that you've eaten and it tries to estimate the calories that you've eaten and then you put in all the activity that you've done and it tries to estimate the calories you've expended and then it subtracts one from the other and basically says here's the difference and tries to work out essentially energy balance i suppose um, in this net calorie term so i don't know where to get started with the things that i have an issue with with this steph i guess the first one is that we know that trying to estimate how many calories you eat through a food tracking app it doesn't matter how good the data is in the app and some of the apps are pretty rubbish in terms of the data in them but that aside assuming that even if the data is good people's estimates of portion sizes and what they eat and everything is usually so poor that if you're getting within 20 to 30 percent of reality you're doing pretty well and that doesn't matter whether you're joe blow off the street or a professor in nutrition the same applies Mm -hmm. Uh, and then if you look at the way it estimates activity energy expenditure so when you put in all the exercise it tries to work out how many calories you've burnt uh, that is an even worse estimate you know you're trying to put in there yeah i went for a bike ride today well some of the time you're going uphill some of the time you're going downhill and not pedaling sometimes you're going flat it's trying to make an estimate on all of that stuff using a thing called the compendium of physical activities which was never ever designed to work out energy expenditure for a person by person basis it was only designed to work that out for thousands of people in big studies where you're looking Mm. at you know the population of sweden and how many calories they expend or you know not necessarily sweden but you know large populations i guess is what i'm talking about it was never designed to give individuals feedback on their calorie expenditure from exercise it's just a complete misuse of that data mm-hmm. so if you're getting within probably 30 to 40 percent of your energy expenditure there you're doing pretty well mm-hmm. and then and then steph you get to the net <laughs> calories and so you're subtracting one rubbish data point from another rubbish data point creating this even more rubbish data point called net calories and then i mean part of it is the data point but part of it is i guess i think how people think about it and use this rubbish data point known as net calories because they then look at this and go oh i've got net calories of this therefore i should eat you know 150 calories more or 50 calories more or whatever it is on that particular day Mm. um two problems one it gives people this sort of false sense of oh i've done all this exercise where i've earned myself more food Mm. and there's that whole relationship between earning food and having to to earn earn your tim Mm. tams or your beer or your piece Mm. of cake or your cheese platter or whatever it is so there's an issue there for a start The other issue is it encourages exactly the opposite of what we talked about a few weeks ago with um, Neil Vanderplug is, you know, fueling for the work required. This is fueling after the work is done. Mm. So it's sort of saying, well, I expended all this energy, therefore I can eat all this extra food. Well, that's not fueling for 
the exercise. It's not going to put the fuel in the tank to go and do the hard workout. It's doing the hard workout and then putting all this fuel in afterwards when it's not going to help you because the workout's already over. Mm. So net calories, don't use it. Don't want to see it again. I want it out of my life. I want it out of everyone else's life because it serves no functional purpose except to confuse and annoy people. <laughs> I love that rant. That's got to be my best rant from you, I reckon. <laughs> well, I did tell you, uh, Steph, it was 10 years in the making. <laughs> love it. Love it. Awesome. Um, all right. So I don't think anyone that listens to this podcast will be using net calories or be thinking uh, too highly of, of us anymore. Or at least they won't admit to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't talk to Alan about it at least. No. Um, <laughs> Especially you, so, Carl. <laughs> Today's episode, episode 33A, can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition? Um, talking to Dana Least and David Martin. Uh, so I'll um, do my best to introduce Dana and then I'll, I'll let you introduce David. Um, so yeah, Dana is an internationally recognised high performance sports dietitian from Canada. Uh, with a PhD in exercise science and she has extensive experience at the professional, Olympic, national and international level. Uh, she currently consults to two teams in the NBA, Golden State Warriors and the Sacramento Kings and with the Canadian Olympic program and to the Israel Premier Tech Pro Cycling team where she's actually used continuous glucose monitors with some of the riders and to the EF Education Tipco Silicon Valley Bank Women's Pro Cycling Team. <laughs> it's a long one. Um, so Dana currently resides between um, Davis and Truckee, California, and she keeps one foot in research at the University of California, um, Davis, and the other in the field with athletes while ensuring that maximal, maximal time is spent skiing with her family. Sounds like a pretty good existence to me, Steph. Mm, she's living the life. She is. She is. And I was unaware until I spoke to her the other week that there was actually um, ski ski resorts in California. There you go. Right nice. up on the uh, the Nevada border, I believe, which is up where yep. Truckee is. Anyway, um, yeah, as I said, our other guest is David Martin. And um, it's funny, I've never seen his name used as David before, but he signed off on all his emails as David. Yeah. signed up onto the system where we did the interview with David. I'm like, I don't know, maybe it's just in Australia, everyone calls him Dave. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, Dave has more than 35 years of experience working with uh, internet, uh, Olympic and professional athletes. Uh, is wide, widely regarded for his innovative approach and leadership in high-performance sport. He spent over 20 years at the Australian Institute of Sport as a senior sports scientist, uh, mainly with a specific focus on road cycling and work with the, the sort of the generation of Australian cyclists that the people really um, would, would know very well, the likes of Robbie McEwen and Cadell Evans and these kind of guys as they were sort of coming through the ranks um, and did a lot of pioneering research and applied sports programs for both summer and Olympic, uh, winter Olympic sports, uh, including the Skeleton Talent Identification Project, which we'll discuss briefly in the, the interview, really cool project that um, he did back in the, the mid-2000s, which 
uh, as we'll talk about kind of paid off just recently earlier this year in the, the Winter Olympics. Uh, but Dave uh, left Australia and returned back to America where he's from uh, about five years ago. And he went over there to work as a director of performance research and development in the NBA for the Philadelphia 76ers and did that for four years. Uh, and since then, since 2019, he actually left the NBA and he's actually gone to Silicon Valley uh, working as a chief scientist for um, an organization called Aperion Life, which is a, a Bay Area performance health science startup. Um, and so obviously, you know, very across the, the tech side of things and, and what's coming and what's driving, I guess, a lot of that tech. Uh, and he's also currently an honorary professor at the Australian Catholic University, where he links up with a lot of his former IAS colleagues, people like Louise Burke that we've had on the podcast before. Um, Meg Ross, we spoke to just before Christmas. A lot of her pre-cooling work was done with Dave as well. So uh, he's certainly got a link back to quite a few of our past episodes through his role at the AIS over many, many years. All right, before we get into the interview though, Steph, um, we sort of talked a lot about continuous glucose monitors, but what we probably didn't do is take a minute to stop and say, what is a continuous glucose monitor? What does it look like, feel like, etc." So do you want to just give us a quick rundown before we get into the interview? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, it's uh, very trendy at the moment and it's been popularised and um, described by some as a real-time fuel gauge for athletes. Um, and, yeah, uh, I guess others um, sort of use it and think of it as like having this molecular lab on your, on your arm. So you actually can see now uh, Alude Kipchoge, he um, is advertising it, so you might see him on a lot of advertisements. Um, so and it, and basically, it's a small circular um, adhesive patch, uh, and uh, people wear it on the back of their upper arm, and it uses a, a thin sort of um, flexible filament that's inserted just under the skin, and that there is to detect glucose levels inside the body, and it's detecting um, the glucose um, from the interstitial fluid. Um, and that's um, a thin layer of fluid that surrounds the cells of the tissues that are just below your skin. Um, and this biosensor works with an app that enables you to um, basically see your body's glucose data in real time. Um, and you can use the app to connect to other apps like your Garmin Connect, Training Peaks, etc. Uh, and there's now a few different brands that are available on the market. Um, many will have heard of Super Sapiens. That's quite a, a common one that I've been seeing. And they use the Abbott um, Libra Sense. Libra, yep. Libra. Um, uh, that's Glucose Sport. And then there's also Dexcom. Um, however, the cost and availability, as Ryan mentioned, um, uh, particularly in Australia, is um, not all that viable at the moment, um, but it does vary between, between countries. Um, and there's heaps of sort of claims about its use, which include that, um, you know, it can help you determine whether you're carb loading effectively, um, potentially how you may fuel your workouts effectively um, and therefore impact on your performance. So um, that's that's kind of what it is. And um, this interview, we're going to dive a bit deeper into, I guess, those questions and see really how um, useful and applied it can be. 
Mm. So the, the glucose monitors essentially have come from a, a background of use in diabetes, where obviously blood glucose monitoring is really important. And for people with type 1 diabetes for a, a long time now, probably almost 20 years, um, people have been using continuous glucose monitors. The actual sensors that they use uh, or that are designed or marketed to athletes are slightly different variants, but pretty much the same technology, um, just with slightly different variants um, in terms of the sensor and also the software that comes along with that and the way that it interfaces with with various um, bits of gear that, that athletes would already use, uh, which is a little bit different to, I guess, the, the bread and butter ones that people with diabetes might come across that are uh, managed through a hospital system. All right, well, let's get into this interview. As we said, um, we started out intending to have one kind of interview. We ended up having another kind, but I think we got some really good information and uh, had a lot of fun along the way. So let's listen to our interview with Dana and Dave. Let's do it. Dana Lees and Dave Martin, welcome to The Long Munch. How are you both going over there in the States? Yeah, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're good over here. I think um, the world has definitely become, I think, a smaller place over the last last few years with all the new technology we have for communicating and new ways of working. So I still feel closer to Australia than than I did when I first moved here. (laughs) Yeah, so so true and so funny. I I probably have. Um, I know when everyone in Australia wakes up because that's when all the Zoom calls start and the phone calls start and usually. Three, four o'clock our time, everybody's getting up in Australia. So I feel the same way. It's been a great way to stay connected with colleagues back in Australia. Um, it's great to be able to catch up with you. And now Dane and I get to do this little dance. So we'll see how it all goes. See if we step on each other's toes or if you get a nice rhythm uh, working out between the two of us. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, as we said, you know, it's the first time we've done a, a two two guest episode. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but I think as you've both kind of alluded to, uh, you've both obviously had connections with Australia in the past. We'll, we'll start with you, Dana. Um, now, from Canada originally, um, but living in California at the moment, but not that long ago, neither of those, you were living in Tasmania. Tell us a little bit about that, what you were doing down here and um, yeah, how that all worked out. Yeah, Tasmania was definitely um, a kind of a... a strange place to live in a way for, for if you ask anyone from sort of Canada or Australia, like Tasmania, where's that? Um, when my husband first was looking at a job in Tasmania, I, um, I told him I, I had no intention to move to Africa. I actually didn't even know where Tasmania was. So now I know that it is part of Australia. And um, I was down there actually ended up doing my PhD. My husband had a, um, a professor position at um You've Taz, and so I was also able to do a really, really cool PhD program there, and also stay affiliated with um, with the Canadian sports system. So he did, he worked down there for a few years uh, in his area of research, and I was able to do a PhD, and we created a little Tasmanian. So always have a a, a citizenship connection to Australia if we need it. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what does twenty twenty two look like in terms of your various roles in sports nutrition? Yeah, so I'm still with Israel Premier Tech, but I've been able to um, play more of a mentorship role. So we have more of a nutrition team now and more feet on the ground. Um, so I'm playing more of a mentorship project-based role, um, which I can much more easily do from California and not travel back and forth as much. And then I'm still working with the Warriors, but that is um, that is a consulting role. So it's still only you know a few days a month. And then um, I also work for Science and Sport out of the UK. So working on sort of launching 
helping to launch the brand in uh, in the U.S., which is a you know a great and interesting opportunity. And then still a little bit of consulting work with various teams. And I've started working with um, EF Tibco, Silicon Valley Bank. There's always these long names for cycling teams. So it's a women's new women's world tour team, and that's been an area where I've been really always wanting to work in. I think there's just so much room for um, just growth and ways to support women cycling. So I'm excited to sort of grow, grow into that role possibly, or at least grow into learning more about women's professional cycling and how to fuel female cyclists. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Dave, we'll move over to you um, from the US originally and obviously back there now. But as you said before, you spent a significant amount of time in Australia yourself with the AIS. What brought you to Australia in the first place? So I was um, working at the U.S. Olympic Training Center way back in the lead up to the 96 Olympics. I was um, in Colorado Springs. And I mean, these these names, I don't even know if people would remember anymore. But um, like Neil Craig and Charlie Walsh, they were working with the track cycling mm. program. They'd come out to Colorado Springs. So I started to have some interface with um, Australian like national teams. And then at the American College of Sports Medicine, some might remember the name Dick Telford and mm-hmm. Alan Hahn and Chris Gore. Um, they would present at, and really everybody was so interested in the Australian sports science research because they were doing like altitude training and thermoregulation, but not with just like university students. We'd always go to their presentations because they were like, you know, 12 members of the national team, four of them which were medalists at the whatever Olympic Games, were tested before and after an altitude camp. We thought it was phenomenal that in Australia they could get their Olympians to engage in really what I thought was fairly invasive work. Um, And there was this kind of collaborative coaching sports science thing. So I'd met Alan Hahn, I'd met Dick Telford, and Dick Dick is, you know, typical quintessential Aussie. He was like, you know, once you finish your PhD, you should drop us your resume. You know, we're always looking for a good sports scientist. And, um, and I did, and he wrote back. And so actually I went over to work with, um, the now late Heiko Salzbiedel, who unfortunately died just last year. Um, he was running this Australian Institute of Sport cycling program with names like, you know, Robbie McEwen and Cadell Evans. And, you know, these guys were legends now at that time, they were just, you know, misfit, enthusiastic youth (laughs) (laughs) that would just go, you know, crazy. And we would, I came in to help with the road program. Neil Craig was running the track cycling program and that kind of kicked everything off. And we thought we'd come for an adventure. My wife and I, she's from Wyoming, um, kind of like Dana. We thought we'd come over for a year or two, see the country, meet some new scientists. And then we had two children who are now Australian citizens. <laughs> and so um, we were there for 21 years. Mm. That was a really, really good time. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um and we've heard your name come up on the podcast before. We spoke to Meg Ross um, late last year about oh. pre-cooling and some of the work you guys did, obviously, in the lead up to the Beijing Olympics. Um, but but thinking about your time at the AIS, are there any particular highlights that you have from that time? Yeah, there's a lot. And you don't even notice what you're doing. You know, at the time, you're just doing, aren't you? And sometimes you have to look back to think like, wow, that was amazing. You know, like Mm. um, we were doing this huge altitude research project and that led to um, some ideas that Alan Hahn had about detecting erythropoietin use in endurance athletes. And you can do it indirectly. And it got UCI funding and IOC funding. And, you know, it was really the, the start of the biological passport. And 
Yeah, it was, it was crazy. Like we were doing all of this research and it feels like it's so intimate and small, but it just had global implications that you could actually deter erythropoietin use, um, which is really hard to detect directly by just looking at all these biological markers, your, your ferritin, your reticulocytes and soluble transferrin receptor. And there's ways to create these logit equations that gave you pretty good understanding if you were either on or recently off EPO. We worked on a tech project and we're talking about technology in this podcast here. And Alan Hahn knew about wearable um, sensors, these triaxial accelerometers and these IMUs or gyroscopes and magnetometers. And we got our hands on some very early versions of this technology. And it was super exciting and we felt kind of pioneering. And years later, there's a company now called Catapult and that came out of that early um, work. And you kind of feel proud that you were part of that, that early development. Um, probably more recently, um, there was a medal that was given out at the Winter Olympic Games to, to Jacqueline Nericott in Skeleton. Um, we started the kind of the first Australian skeleton program and got a grant and grabbed all these surf lifesavers from the Gold, Gold Coast and <laughs> convinced them to try sprinting on ice instead of sprinting on the beach. And instead of riding a, you know, boogie board on their belly, ride a sled on ice. And uh, they, they got top 10. And, you know, I think, I think Steph was actually at a session where I was presenting to a group of dietitians with Louise Burke. And at the same time, I was getting updates from oh, that was uh, Jason yeah. Goldman. You were there. Yeah, yeah, you were there. yeah, yeah, yeah I was right. there. You remember? And they had like, yeah. he was like, mate, you can't believe it. You know, we've got an under 23 world champion. Oh my God, she'd been sliding mm. for four months. And those moments really stick out to you where you, you think the impossible becomes reality and, and you remember them. But you probably remember the students and the, the staff, like your friendships is probably what you remember the most. Yeah. Um, you then moved, obviously, back to the States a few years ago and worked in the NBA with the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, but now you're over in California with a startup. Is it called Aperion Life? Is that right? Yep, that's yep. right. I found out that Dana was in California. I said, I got to get close. She's such a talent. I need to get back there. <laughs> that's it. Um, I, yeah, I ended up... Um, the Philadelphia 76ers were doing a rebuild. They were one of the worst teams in the league. And so there was an opportunity to come out and have a very healthy budget, um, like very healthy, like almost the entire budget of the Australian Institute of Sport for 15 players. It's ridiculous. And the idea was to build a facility, hire a team, and kind of bring Australian contemporary sports science methodology to, to the NBA. And, and the Sixers weren't the only one. We, we became the trendy thing to have. Everyone's got to get one. And our owners with the Sixers were so disappointed. I still remember when they met me and they heard my accent. And they're like, I thought you are from Australia. And I was like, I've been living there. And they were like, what a ripoff. They wanted an authentic Aussie sports scientist. And they didn't get it. They got a hybrid. I think they were very disappointed. They met my boys and people were wondering. People would literally ask us, where did you get them? As if we adopted them. Like we named them. You know? It was great. So um, that was a four-year contract. And um, after that was over, there was an opportunity uh, to come to Silicon Valley. And uh, there was a venture capitalist who's part owner of Golden State Warriors. And he had some really interesting ideas. And so um, he said, like, if you want, come on over. We're going to build up a startup company. And I thought that's one thing I have never done is 
you know, work in a startup company. And I was just really interested, how do you take an idea? How does Mark Zuckerberg have an idea? Steve Jobs has an idea. How the heck one idea, couple friends, and they build it up. And now you got Facebook, or now you got Apple, or now you got Google. It just amazes me that the ideas that we all have could develop into essentially small companies that do great things for people, but are also profitable at the same time. So I've been here for um, just coming into my third year right now. Um, and Dana, from your point of view, what are the sort of, I guess, the current it products, if you like, that you're seeing athletes use at the moment? What are the kind of the things that are the most popular? Yeah, I think definitely the two that I see most uh, most athletes using are technologies that will give them information about their sleep and sort of readiness to perform. And the other would be continuous glucose monitors or CGMs. So I definitely, um, there's been a huge uptake in both of those technologies, pros and cons to each for sure. But I think, again, when I'm working with a team or an athlete and they're using this new technology, either an individual athlete is using it or a team has implemented it, you know, they might have a partnership with a company. And my, my, my question is always, I'm always very open, but also my question is, what are our actionable pieces? What are the performance priorities for this athlete, for this team? And can we get information that's going to feed into those performance priorities that is going to improve performance or health? Again, a, a, you know, a performance parameter. So, you know, there's definitely been cases where I'm like, yeah, CGM has definitely improved uh, an aspect of an athlete's fueling or some of their performance goals and other scenarios where it's just gone the wrong way and it's, um, you know, it's really stressed them out in a way. So I think it's um, being open is key again, but just what are what are our priorities? What are the actionable pieces? And I think, you know, a phrase I'll always hear is, oh, I want to, you know, I'm using this because I want to learn about myself. But sometimes athletes don't know what they want to learn. What, like, I think you have to have a question you want to answer. Otherwise, you're just collecting all this data and you don't necessarily know what you want to do with it. So, uh, and I think that's just more about, you know, being efficient too. If you have all day to, to stare out, stare at your, your CGM output, go for it. But I think most athletes are pretty busy and I think it's important to prioritize what's going to, what's going to have a bigger impact. Yeah. Yeah. And because of that, do you see a difference, I guess, between the sort of technologies or, or data capture that athletes are coming to you with and they're excited about versus maybe what um, you know, staff, sports scientists, nutritionists are sort of saying this is what we think is going to be useful? Do you find that there's a sort of a conflict between those two often? Absolutely. I think sometimes athletes will come with, you know, let's say let's this, this graph that's come up for the week or the day and they're, you know, they'll, they'll, they won't know how to necessarily use it um, in terms of let's, you know, use a, a continuous glucose monitor um, output for a day or a week and athletes will come they're like oh look i my my i spiked here interesting um or i was kind of stable here and but the actionable piece and how i use this to determine how i might fuel for another session or how i might change fueling strategies is missing so i think trying to come up with where the where the performance nutrition gaps are first to see if these tools will then fill help fill those gaps um and then there's been pieces too where I think, um, you know, I've had athletes and there's definitely like some of the uh, CGM companies are producing, you know, wonderful blog posts, interesting research as well. So I, I, I'm definitely grateful for some of the blog posts and st that are coming out. They're, they're super informative. Um, but I definitely have athletes that are getting so wrapped up in their, in their, in their blood glucose levels that they're getting so focused on every 
bite of food that they eat, that it's becoming too obsessive as well. So there's the whole psychological piece that, uh, that we need to consider too. So for some athletes that maybe under fuel inadvertently, it can be a really good tool to help them understand how, how much they do need to fuel. Um, for athletes that, you know, may have restrictive eating behaviors and are really scared of seeing any, you know, blood glucose increases at all, it can actually be a, a pretty detrimental tool. So I think you really need to read your athlete um, in terms of what what technology you want to use and if it's a good tool. And it, you know, there's no exactly cookie cutter scenario where it's going to fit or where it's not going to fit. Um, I think it's just, yeah. And sometimes, you know, we just experiment it with it for a few weeks and, you know, a lot of athletes be like, oh, I just want to try it for a few weeks and see what I learn. I'm like, you know, depending on the athlete, it might be okay, sure, go for it. We'll see what we learn. But without a really clear outcome laid out in front of experimenting with it, I would, I wouldn't say we've really had any huge, um, eureka moments. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point too, because obviously, you know, you're working directly with athletes with, there'll be a lot of, you know, runners, cyclists, triathletes mm. out there that don't have that, um, interaction with, you know, a nutritionist, sports scientist, someone like that or coach that, that is across that tech to help them with that. And so I guess that's potentially an issue where, um, you know, you're implementing this technology, but you're not really sure what you're implementing it for or the best way to use it or whether it's even a suitable tool in that case so it's almost better to have that professional support who can then advise you whether it's a useful or worthwhile thing to to do yeah and there's been scenarios like with weight loss for example i've had a couple of athletes that i haven't really worked too closely day to day with them but it's been a really good tool for weight loss for them um and that's more in the sort of um soccer soccer space um and there's athletes that um you know are experimenting with different low carbohydrate fueling strategies. So they're able to kind of, you know, gauge their individual physiology a bit and how, how low they can go for how long before they really do bonk. Uh, so, I mean, some of those tools, um, there, there is a place for it for sure. But I think just try to have those actionable questions before you start tracking every minute of your day. There's a game you can play. And I, I did it at a couple in-house workshops at the AIS. Just grab a, grab a horoscope. Just grab one, you know, Jim and I, Libra, just grab a horoscope and usually they'll give you a weekly prediction and, and do some word substitutions. And instead of talking about Mars and Venus, talk about glucose and power. And it's pretty easy. Just do some substitution, word substitution. And they'll say things like, you know, um, instead of Jim and I, it'll be like, you know, um, Bob, you know, this is the, the, the person. And it'll say that... Um, Glucose is uh, trending up through a number of your rides. That would be instead of Mars coming into orbit, you know. Um, and we see a slight disturbances with irregularity in power versus which is the moon, you know. These two together are making us think it's an unstable period. Beware, you know, you may sense fatigue, but because of the, you know, it, and, and you can read a bunch of them and they'll all say kind of nuancey themes that are very alluring and, you know, they talk in riddles, horoscopes. And you will see some practitioners can pick this up really, really quickly. And for you or I or Dana, we're like, whoa, whoa, stop the truck. That was bull. You didn't say anything, you know, but the mm. athletes will love it. They will love it. You know, the nuances of the speed with the changes in the power suggest um, possible modifications of diet could be helpful. Beware when fatigued to not be overly sensitive of giving up early. You may have more in the tank than you think. Dropping glucose is, you know what I mean? And so we got to mm. be super careful about the language that we bring to this. In, in one sense, it's an art form and you just need to 
admire how good some people are. They have the look. They, they just look like a sports scientist or dietitian and they're in the field and you hear them talk. And it, it kind of pisses you off a bit because you know that it's all BS, but in a way you're also a bit of a fan because you're like, oh my God, the buy-in, look at the eye contact and the buy-in and the belief here. This person is loving it. They're ready to, they were a hopeless athlete. And now with their continuous glucose meter, there is newfound hope and a newfound strategy. And they're going to, you know, take on the world. And I think the magic will be in the, the dietitians and the sports scientists who have like legitimate commentary in a connected, enthusiastic way. If you get that right, I think you're just killing it. Um, and if you know your science, but you can't connect, it doesn't do much. And if you're talking in wonderful, motivational ways, <laughs> but you don't know what you're talking about, your colleagues will eventually figure you out. So I think that's an overlay to this whole world of athlete engagement around continuous you know, glucose meters that we need to be aware of. And read the read mm. the blogs, aren't they good, Dana? Like you said, they some of good. the scientific mm. writers I read them, I'm like, damn, I almost started believing it. That's amazing. <laughs> that was so good, you know. And then you have to walk away and clear your head and be like, there's yeah. nothing in that. That was there's nothing in that. But God, it sounds so good. Yep. Linked a couple papers. I'm like, damn, oh. I know, I suck. <laughs> Yeah. So usually, usually not reference. And if you do look up the reference, you're like, that's not what this paper said. I know Louise Burke, and she did not say that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we're going to yeah get stuck in a bit more into the, the continuous glucose um, monitoring because um, they are going crazy, crazy here. Um, so, uh, and you see um, Kipchoge wearing it and, and advertising it. And, you know, it's um, the, you can connect the continuous glucose monitors to, to apps like Garmin Connect, Training Peaks, um, and mm. all of those types of things. So, I guess, yeah, Dave, what are your thoughts about the use of tracking blood glucose in endurance athletes um, more specifically? Um, and do you feel that it does add any value or insights um, that we don't, you know, currently get? Yeah, I think, you know, most good answers are not good answers or not satisfying answers, but real <laughs> answers are, it, it depends. Um, yeah. I would start by saying that um, there's a couple of fun analogies. Um, one of them is like, if you're going to travel from, you know, one part of town to another, you could walk. You know, you could ride a bike, um, you could ride a horse, or you could drive a car, and they'll all get you from point A to point B. And a lot of dietitians will work out ways to figure out whether an athlete is underfueling for an endurance event. There's ways to do it. They'll talk to them. Um, they will watch what they eat. Uh, they'll measure what they eat. They'll look at pacing strategies. Um, and there are ways that dietitians for years have figured that, you know, I think you're under fueling for this event. And I think if we fuel differently, you'll perform better. Now we move from like the bicycle or the horse to the car. So it, it's still the same question. It's still the same, you know, challenge, but the dietitian might be able to use a different tool to um, reflect with that athlete and help them learn. These are athletes that are very familiar now with the digital world. Um, and they trust some of the digital signals. And so you got a way to start to 
you know, connect with them in a unique enough way. Same question, same answer, same intervention, but just um, almost spoken with a different language. And I think when you you go at continuous blood glucose monitoring with that approach, it's not like, oh my God, athletes today are performing so poorly. We're going to wear this little patch and every mm -hmm. world record is going to fall. <laughs> this is going to be, it's not, it's not like that, is it? Mm -hmm. um, no. The other thing that I think is really interesting is kind of, you know, where Dana was going, there are clear examples of tech going very bad that people over indexing and, and things going very bad. And probably the example I find the most interesting is um, in, in um, the area of fetal heart rate monitoring in the seventies, like a fetal heart rate monitor didn't exist forever. This is a new found, um, you know, uh, advancement in technology. And so how did people have, how, are how did you do a baby without a fetal heart rate monitor? Well, the midwives knew, didn't they? The midwives knew and they, they, they said, look, having a baby can be dangerous, but usually it's not. And I'm going to be there with you. And if you're in a lot of pain, I'll do this. And if you're coping well, I'll do this. And this is the way that we are going to allow you to be supported while you have the baby. So what happened? Here comes fetal heart rate monitors. Oh my God, new technology. And midwives are no longer needed. Like they're so get, get the midwives out and let's over medicalize this whole thing called childbirth. And people are freaking out about what they saw. Like, holy crap, these little babies before they're born have really high heart rates. So C-sections go through the roof and the whole industry goes on its head for almost a decade before it starts to renormalize. And you can imagine how much BS interpretation is going to happen with continuous blood glucose meters during endurance events. We don't know what normal is. We have, have you ever seen the continuous blood glucose meter every day in the Tour de France of the winter? I have no idea. So, so we don't know the extremes of acceptability. And the easiest thing to do is for people to go, oh my God, and, and, and get a little bit hyper over these subtle signals that may be actually a normal part of endurance training and competition. And I think that that is uh, what happens when some really exciting new technology comes out. And then the last thing I'll just mention, I really picked this up from two commando regiment up there at Holsworthy with the, um, in Australia, kind of the special forces unit in Afghanistan, they were doing a lot of heavy lifting, those guys, and they were using a lot of tech and they were very well funded. Um, but the guys I was talking to on base and the people that helped us with the AIS combat center were very clear about a codependency is not desired. You are not to be codependent on tech because you have to be a fierce warrior. You are a commando from Australia and you have to be able to operate without sophisticated comms, without sophisticated tech. So the tech is there to accelerate your learning and to help you be robust in your independence. And I thought, what a great philosophy. The tech is there for you to learn quickly and to be fully aware of who you are so you can be amazingly independent and robust versus becoming a cyborg where you ride and go, what do I do? Ooh, glucose dropping, re-regulate, change cadence, eat bar. You know, it's like a, that's a whole different type of athlete. So that's, those are my thoughts right now on CGM. The UCI actually did ban the use yes. of CGM. Yeah. 
I, I saw that was Michael Rogers. Luis Burke told me about that. It was one of his quotes. He was on, you know, an Australian, you know, cyclist was involved with some of these statements of saying like, we don't want to have a bunch of robots out there racing. We want to see the excitement of sport. Yeah. We love it when blood glucose drops. That means you're out of the tour, sucker. You know? <laughs> we want yeah. him suffering. You call that hypoglycemic? <laughs> You stopped it before it got too bad. <laughs> yeah. Is that only during competition, Dana, where it's banned? Yeah, for yeah. sure. So they can still use it in training. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say it may be for now, for now, because the, the UCI and a lot of sporting bodies are very um, cautious early on um, for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, if there's going to be money to be made on CGMs, why not have a UCI endorsed CGM company? And there's like, you know, there's a variety of reasons why they would uh, try to keep it out of the um, out of the sport. But remember, there was a time when cameras were not allowed in the cockpit of Formula One for the race car drivers. And it's good TV. So now it's everywhere. Everyone's watching. Everyone's got the in cockpit um, television. So it can change. But for now, you're right. No go. Yeah, for sure. And there was um, a sort of a review was published about a year ago on the use of CGM during exercise and sort of the accuracy of that. Um, so, you know, we can always link that to the podcast notes too, um, just if readers are interested in, in looking at some just reviews of different literature um, over the past few years. I think it's worth looking at that. And um, so have you experimented much with CGMs um, at all, David, like with the, the teams that you work with, the athletes that you work with? Do, yeah. Are you using them? Most recently, um, I am working, you know, with these kind of C-suite executives and, and financial guys, and they are super interested. And it's interesting why they're interested. A lot of investors will try tech before they invest in tech. So. Yeah. They kind of have this dual kind of, you know, I want the experience and I'm interested in my health, but I'm also super interested, you know, Peter Atia is a very famous podcaster. He's really spruiking these things. I, he's probably got his relationships with continuous, you know, blood glucose, you know, companies as well. And so they want to try it out. And they're like, you know, Abbott, you know, Dexcom, like which one's more accurate? How does it work? Which one lasts longer? You know, how they, they ask questions about how accurate they are. And you can see there's interested in the market and the growth of the sector, as well as the, in, the, the experience that they're, they're going to have. Um, and what I hear feedback when I say, what do you think? Like, what question do you have? And, and I can help you understand whether this, you know, device is going to help you answer that question. They'll say, well, it sounds like high oscillations of blood glucose for the normal person is bad. So... And it sounds like there's different types of food you can eat and the response is going to be high or low and low would be good and high is bad. This is really black and white. So I'll wear this. I'll eat popcorn. Holy cow. Boom. I eat ice cream. Oh, it's not so high. So when I'm watching a movie, I'll have ice cream versus popcorn. You're like, yeah, but I think there's more calories in ice cream than popcorn. So it's not just all, it's not just all your blood glucose surge. You would see very simplistic scenarios, something like that. Um, and, and they're exploring and interested, and there is tons of FOMO, fear of missing out, both in elite sport and in elite business. 
and everybody's does they don't want to miss out like what's going on maybe i should be using it maybe my health could be better my life could be longer my quality of days could be enhanced if i just stick this thing on my arm so in terms of i guess just for our listeners and i think you'll be able to do a better job at explaining it for us what are the continuous glucose monitors measuring um is it measuring it um you know interstitial fluid etc um so what's it measuring um and how you know practical is that for the athlete is it telling them anything and what is the accuracy of of it um and can it really tell us anything the comparisons that i've seen um as we went through a lot of it was the the abbott um, since I know there's there's more there's like four or five different sensors out there. The two that I'm aware of is the the Dexcom and the Abbott. Um, and the data, I think there was this. Uh, I think Freckman did a review of accuracy and reliability and was showing uh, fairly comparable results. I know there's other review papers as well, but I think they have this MAR. What is it? MARD of um, it's a relative average relative difference of around nine to ten percent for both of them. Um, and what comes down to if you're a diabetic and you're having massive swings, like you don't need like, you know, millimole precision, do you? You're like low, good, high. And that's usually good enough. And so I think a lot of is it accurate enough? These different systems comes down to the question that you're answering. I know that um, I think Dexcom is live streaming. The data is just loading up. I think Abbott. They end up parsing, the, you know, packaging the data and then uploading it in chunks. So if you wanted to see a live reading with something, um, then certain sensors are going to be more favorable for those type of questions. Um, I think it's, um, is it Abbott goes 14 days, Dexcom, I think 10, is that right? I think based on their battery life and how long they last. One thing we were really wondering is uh, in the heat when people go out hiking or playing mm. tennis and it's hot. Mm. Or they're swinging the arm and potential movement artifact. Um, mm. You asked the question about interstitial essentially versus serum or blood. Yeah. Um, it's probably horses for courses. Like if you're going to do interstitial, stay with interstitial. And if you're moving back and forth is where you might get yourself in a little trouble. From what I've seen, the, the correlation between the interstitial blood glucose and the serum blood glucose is, um, or plasma blood glucose is actually you know, quite similar. They're probably telling you different things, but they're, they're quite um, similar. So that'd be my, my general take. I, I think if you're looking for extremes, almost any sensor will do you. It's high, it's average, it's low. Mm -hmm. If you want to get into the nuances of rate of change or some of the really, some interesting questions, you might have to double down on understanding the technology. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are differences between interstitial and blood glucose levels, but those the, the difference that we understand is fairly standard. I just think your sampling frequency with the continuous monitor is going to give you just those little micro micro readings that you wouldn't otherwise get with this with a finger prick. But again, yeah, again, echoing that, it comes down to what question you want to answer. This is where I tell everybody that um, I am not financially invested nor on an advisory board for any continuous yeah. glucose meters. If they profit or bottom out, it, it makes no, it doesn't care. I don't care at all. Myself yeah. as well. Truth. I think, um, yeah, I, true. 
when I first tried um, one of the one of the continuous glucose monitors, I was like, okay, before like this is getting popular. I know probably this season I'm uh, gonna have a lot of riders that are you know gonna start using it or asking questions. I better I better I better learn about this before before the season starts. So I, I got one of the sensors and started. You know the app was just relatively new, so there was a lot of issues with trying to download it and stuff. But got myself all set up, and you know like read the instructions, put the sensor in my arm. I'm like, okay, wow, I'm like. This is, this is, I'm sticking something in my arm. I'm not sure if this is going to hurt. Didn't hurt. But anyway, so then I started, you know, watching this data, data come in and I started freaking out. I was like, I am a dietitian. My blood sugar should not be here at any point. And these, these wild swings. And then, so I'm talking to the company and they're like, well, you know, the first eight, 12 hours, it takes a while to settle out. And I'm like, okay, okay. Oh, I, but I had already by this point gone to the drugstore and bought a fingerprint. Cause I'm like, I got to see if this is like, if this is real or if this is just the sensor sort of you know, getting its getting its kind of flow and just uh, and so I think um, yeah and I so I did get you know a finger a finger prick monitor and was you know kind of doing a little experiment on myself to sort of see what the difference was in these readings. Um, so there was a lot of you know personal learning there too. But I think if you are you know starting to experiment with a continuous glucose monitor, just take time to kind of learn about the pros and cons, learn about the process of the sensor, kind of just calibrating itself um and also just like the different times when you might have um jumps in blood sugar where it's completely normal like the dawn effect for example just take time to learn about those those sort of nuances so you don't um kind of you know start going off the deep end with any anything um so yeah just some yeah personal experience <laughs> the technology is at a state that when you see extreme readings your first go-to is to question the reading yeah like, don't go, oh, my God, let's go to hospital. You're, you're in a diabetic coma. It's not yeah. like, oh, my God, your blood glucose is so high. There's a you know problem with your endocrine system. And the, the, the new player will – we did the same stuff with power meters. People would come in and they would go, oh, my God, we're on the track. It's a world record. Someone just held 2,800 watts peak power. And, and what do you think of that? And I'd be like, what was their time? Their time was not a world record. Yeah. Um, when have we ever seen this before? Never. Um, how much of an outlier is this? Extreme. So what do I think? I mean, as an old fart, I think the date is bad. That's what I think. Yeah. Everybody's like, whoa, don't be such a party pooper. That was like a world record power output. And I was like, in a slow ass dude that's just riding average. Like, don't be. <laughs> you can't have someone talking to you and they look fine and they have no blood glucose. It's like, that's not normal, is it? Yeah. You know you're in a, a hypoglycemic coma. You don't need a sensor to tell you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing as well is terms of um, the the person using um, the monitor is not um, overthinking it, you know, and like, oh, crap, my levels are here. This means my performance is going to be bad because I think that's where we can get into into strife um you know like just because your levels are here um doesn't mean that that's going to um impact on your performance like we don't have that data yeah and 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 don't like we were kind of you know talking around that theme of you know don't forget the sensations like how do you feel which is what dietitians yes. have been doing forever how did it feel did you yes. feel like you were running out of energy do you feel like you're alert do you feel like your tongue's numb do you tell me how do you feel and 
you know, the, the glucose measurements in conjunction with sensations is really interesting. Like mm -hmm. I feel terrible. Well, your glucose looks really normal. That doesn't mean you can't feel terrible. A lot of people feel mm -hmm. terrible with normal glucose. So, um, yes. and conversely, you can feel great and you, you look a bit on the low end of blood glucose, but you feel great. You're on fire. You're doing really good. And that's good to build like a, a resilient athlete too. Like you can perform mm -hmm. extremely well with a range of glucose. It doesn't need to be perfectly mm -hmm. at this level for you to perform well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're learning more just about um, how we can pull some of that information into other strategies. Like when athletes go to altitude, are, do we have a case where an athlete is really struggling at altitude and Maybe the CGM information is giving us information about their physiology the first few days um, or with caffeine as well. So I think there are pieces where if we have a question answer, we could we could use some of that data for sure. Yeah. 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 I was just going to say, um, so you, you mentioned in terms of it depends on your questions. So um, in using the CGM. So what questions have you found that the CGM is useful to help answer with the athletes that you work with? Yeah, we've um, used it with um, specific training sessions where we're using low carbohydrate availability, um, partly because in cycling, um, you know, we have this, these fancy terms for and strategies to use, you know, low carbohydrate training. A lot of the athletes already do this um, way ahead of before it even becoming a research concept. But I think in cyclists, some of the cyclists we work with are, you know, I'll use David's term that he, I remember him using this term, the cream of the cream of the crop. And, you know, their physiology is so beyond, you know, anything we would find in, in a normal, you know, research study where you're using recreationally active athletes where, mm -hmm. you know, you might have these certain enzymatic adaptations in an hour of, let's say, fasted training in, you know, according to a study. But when we look at some of these really incredibly adapted athletes with such, you know, unique physiologies that we might need to go, you know, a lot longer on with a, you know, a low carbohydrate strategy to even start getting into so, some of those adaptations. And that's where we can, you know, use a little bit of CGM data um, to understand, you know, what's going on um, with their blood, blood sugar levels. And, you know, we've had athletes that, you know, are riding on nothing for longer than I can even fathom mm. and, mm. you know, stable blood sugar levels. And so, um, yeah, that's definitely one case um, where we found it valuable. Um, and then also if, as a tool for weight loss, when the usual strategies just aren't resonating with an athlete, they've just, you know, they're in really interesting characters and, you know, we've tried all these different strategies and when they have an app in front of them and they see how they react to different meals and you say, okay, we want to try to, you know, not have, you know, all these spikes throughout the day constantly. Let's try to keep them around meal times. That's been a really good tool to help an athlete just regulate their behavior change. So, um, and then probably also with just um, increasing fueling intake and just helping athletes understand what they need to take in, in terms of preparing for a race or, you know, stage racing, refueling between stages. Um, we've, we've, you know, collected good data that has had effect on behavior change. So I think in those scenarios where we have an actual actionable item that we know is going to impact performance and we can use the output from CGM or a tech to help influence behavior change. And I think that's something that as a dietitian, as we sort of look towards where our field is going and the tools we have in our toolbox, a lot of the athletes we're working with, you know, are not the same athlete we were working with when I started 15, 20 years ago. 
these athletes are very, very in tune with technology. Their behavior change tools we use have to sort of, they have to evolve with, with the new, with the new athlete we're working with. And the behavior change tools are a lot, you know, on a phone. Um, They're a lot more advanced than, you know, motivational interviewing, for example, not that motivational interviewing isn't advanced, but we have to also just expand our toolbox, I think, to, to match the advancement of the athlete we're working with. I guess guess the flip side to that question, Dana, is have there been any questions that you've sort of set out to answer with the continuous glucose monitor that you've actually found in hindsight, actually, it didn't really help us answer very well? Yeah, I think just the ambiguous stuff, like, oh, let's learn about X, Y, and Z, or I want to learn about myself or my physiology. And, you know, I'll, I'll agree with athletes. I'll be like, okay, yeah, let's, sure. Let's, let's, let's learn about, but without having a clear question, I don't feel like we've learned much. And that's just based on my experience. There may be athletes out there that have learned a ton from just having that sort of ambiguous, let's try it and see what we get. But I think that's probably where we haven't learned much. It's just ambiguity. Yep. And one, one I'm really interested to find out from your experiences with, you know, obviously different athletes in different sports use different terms for this, whether it's, you know, hitting the wall, bonking, Mm -hmm. hunger flatting, whatever you want to call it. Do you actually see that on a continuous glucose trace? Do you actually see a drop in blood glucose at, at around that time that people describe those kind of symptoms? Yep. Yeah. I would, yep. Yeah. In terms of just how frequency the sample, the frequency of the sampling for sure. Um, yeah, we definitely can see those trends. Yep. Um, whether or not um, an athlete is watching that data in advance enough is another case. Um, and, you know, we've talked about having that data on, um, on, on, on the bike, uh, bike computer that they're looking at. Um, and, you know, all, all these sort of different tools to, you know, watch the data as you're riding. And it really depends if an athlete's looking at it. Yeah. We can yeah. look at it in hindsight, but are they actually looking at the data that time, at that time? Depends. <clears throat> but I guess even in hindsight, that might be a good educational tool. For that, sure. You know, they're not Absolutely. fueling enough during training. Yeah. Yeah. There's some there's some early studies. I have to pull these up. Um there there are some early studies. I remember for you know, of course, using them in a presentation, um, where they basically, you know, put a cannula in and they ride people for yeah, I think it, it's running actually. I think they're having them run marathon distances mm-hmm. and then they would run them on the treadmill until they had to regulate their pace and say, I I, I wanna finish, but I can't keep my race pace. And this is what an indwelling, you know, cannula and they're pulling blood out at, you know, 15 minute intervals and showing that the, you know, that's the, the glucose does fall. Yeah. And uh, I think it does make sense that not only does the glucose fall and the pace slows in some people where the liver's just, it's just done. There's just no more, you know, gluconeogenesis going on. Um, and I don't know what kind of carbohydrate intake they were taking during, I bet they were trying to create the study to try to favor full glycogen depletion. Um, but it makes sense that the, the glucose meters will pick that up. You'll see that. I guess the question is, is it kind of like, um, you know, taking a picture of a car crash? <laughs> it's like that car crashed. Mm. <laughs> or, or is there like, is it preceding the car crash? Mm. Like if you keep this up, you're going to crash. Yep. Or is it just like, oh, damn, he crashed. Because, yep. you know, an athlete that's really hit the wall, they, they kind of know. Mm. You know, you don't need to check their blood glucose meter to it. It's like, yeah. look at them. They were running and now they're walking mm. and they don't look great. Yeah. And any insights into that, Dana, in terms of seeing it coming? 
yeah, I think it would, it's, I think I would love to use it more in training scenarios when, you know, in training camps, when we're trying to nail down, like, you know, who are, who are our under fuelers and, you know, you can pick that information up from just observing, talking to the riders, but sometimes, you know, riders have such a block with carbohydrate intake that they, you know, they have, you know, their own food rules around carbohydrate, or they, you know, just try to restrict as much as possible during training. And then they'll fuel during racing. I see in that scenario, having those numbers in front of a rider could really impact behavior change in a positive way. Um, And, you know, they might not be, you know, fully hitting the wall or bonking, but they could be dropping low enough that we can then look at their power meter and say, yeah, your numbers kind of dropped down here. And you were you know, from the car, we kind of saw you were riding like this, but like, when we look at these numbers, when's the last time you fueled, you know, I saw you take a bottle probably two hours before then, but I don't know, did you take anything else in? And I think in terms of another tool to layer in, in a training situation for those cases where we probably, we know we have athletes under fueling, but we are tools for trying to get them to change their behaviors aren't working fast enough. Um, and you know, that's a great scenario where, yeah, I'd love to stick them in a biosensor and use that data to help impact behavior change in a day rather than, you know, working mm. with that athlete for months. Have you, um, either of you seen um, when you've used it in an athlete that um, you've detected really high blood glucose levels? Um, and then in that situation, what do you do? Like, what are the questions that you're asking there? And how have you applied that? I, I mean, I, I haven't really. I've seen uh, people out in really hot, hot conditions on hikes and stuff coming back and some runs um, where I've actually seen a lot lower values than I thought. And they said they felt fine. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if there's a, if, you know, the sensor is sensitive to the heat. I'm not sure what's happening here, but it seemed like it disconnected. Yeah. Okay. So to bring this all together, Dana, it sounds like from what you're saying with the, the CGM, I guess you're going to have a, you know, if you're going to use it, you need a particular question that you want to answer or, you know, you suspect a particular issue and you want to use the CGM, I guess, to investigate that issue a little bit more Mm -hmm. and um, and sort of see whether that's, that that weighs out or not, or whether it becomes an education tool. But I guess in, in any of those cases, it sounds like the use of CGM is, it's like, it's not going to be an ongoing thing. It's not like, you know, you strap the the head unit to your computer to your bike every time you go out for a ride and you'll do that every day for the rest of you your time in cycling you're not going to do the same with cgm you're not going to be putting it on every time for the next 10 or 15 years it's just going to be for that time where you're trying to answer that question and once you've learned from that you, you're kind of done with it yeah i think there i think i would use it strategically like that i think um i think you know endurance athletes need to be careful about how much information they have pouring in constantly I, I, I'm from a very strategic approach in that I would use it to answer a question, you know, maybe revisit that kind of retest, retest, um, in different scenarios at altitude, different supplementation strategies, but having a continuous flow of information is, it's just a lot. Like it's, it's another external stress. So I think I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd be strategic for sure. All right. Well, I think we might move on to our bonus round to finish up with. And this is where we find out a little bit more about both of you. Um, we might go maybe one 
taking turns of, of which question to answer um, so it doesn't become a half hour bonus round. I hope I get a good round. one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll start with you then, Dave, since you're so keen. Oh, um, so the first question, if you could go back to the end of high school and you had to start again down a completely different career path, what do you reckon you would have chosen? I think I'd go into marketing. I, I'd go into advertising. I would. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I think I love telling stories and I love um, – how kind of things connect and people buy into stuff, I'd probably go into, I'd probably go into advertising. Um, yeah. Or I would do something for the world. I would really try to think, my dad's an engineer and he builds stuff and it still stands what he builds and like he helps communities. And, you know, in our industry, sometimes if you talk to your parents, I don't know if you ever had this, like, so, so, what, did, so what did you do? You went to a race, what did you do? We tried to help, like, so they can't ride a bike without you. No. <laughs> Yeah, they can, but and so it's like it's really hard to explain what you do sometimes. And I think I'd mm. look for something that would be like we built a farm and it feeds thousands of people and everyone's happy. You know, I think mean, mm. that that would feel good. <laughs> yep, yep, fair enough. Um, Dana, favorite place to escape from work? Uh, you know what? I live in the favorite place to escape from work. Really, I. Um, I'm lucky enough to live um, just outside of Lake Tahoe in a town called Truckee. And I look out my window and I'm on a lake and I can literally put my skis on two minutes from my house and backcountry ski and cross-country ski and paddle and mountain bike. So honestly, I can go right outside my window and escape. And it's probably my favorite place to escape. So it's nice when you're able to make make kind of your, your dreams a reality. But I still would like to be an FBI agent. Oh, there you go. She would be good. You would be good. Undercover. I think you'd be yep. great. Awesome. I'm yep. such a good <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, we're actually whipping through these quickly. So, Dave, where's your favorite place to escape from work? Um, more recently, it's just, um, I wish I could, I wish Dana was closer. I'd just pop up and escape up there. Um, <laughs> I just go, we, we have all these little redwood groves. And there's the one thing about California, like there's, there's a lot of problems with this state, but tell you what, the scenery is spectacular. And there are some just amazing hikes there. I mean, redwoods are a, a different breed of tree. And the other thing is some of the hikes down here yeah. have eucalypts. You'll find, you feel like you're in Australia. You're waiting for kangaroos yeah. to come bouncing out. It is so insanely <laughs> reminiscent of like hiking around, you know, Gibsland or something. It's, it's really interesting. So that's one of the advantages that we can just, pop off into the woods it's it's quiet it's um beautiful weather and um that's a that's a great way to escape mm. but you can't find those kangabangas at the grocery store <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, we do actually have little patches of redwood forest here in victoria there's um oh, I didn't yeah know. one oh, nice. in one in the otways and one mm. that's um yeah. they started a plantation like in the 30s and then abandoned it it's just like this two square kilometer area of oh, redwood wow. forest just out of warburton yeah it's I, i'd go there all the time it? yeah and then there's like a lake you can just like do a run around there um and then yeah go there and then just dip in the lake and it's, that's it's so stunning. cool i remember that I, that's that may be the one thing i remember from this entire podcast <laughs> <laughs> that was really good yeah and i'll yeah. try to wear a continuous blood glucose meter along the way <laughs> yeah why not? Um, dana what's a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't had a chance 
Um, probably surfing. I have tried surfing, but it's a sport that I've always wanted to be good at. So when I say try, my version of try is actually like give it a go, not just be a tourist and grab a surfboard for a couple hours, yeah. uh, but definitely surfing. And I really didn't take advantage of the opportunity when I lived in Australia. The water's cold in Tassie. I, I don't mm. do cold water mm. that well. Um, but I think I definitely, hindsight, would have taken the advantage to spend some more time on, on the Gold Coast. So, yeah, hands down surfing. Um, and I think, honestly, it's uh, one of the hardest sports in the world, if not the hardest. Yeah. What about you, Dave? I, I always thought um, it would be fun. My dad was a smoke jumper. Um, he was airborne, and then he did a bit of smoke jumping for firefighting. And we so we'd go and watch them land like they jump out of planes and i always thought the skydiving with a bunch of friends where they jump out and they hold hands and spin around and i always thought that'd be really really cool um yeah and the other one here is i never really thought about it until i got to san francisco is that the kiteboarding is really popular and um it Mm. just looks it looks amazing i think you need to have a good instructor and um it's just it just looks amazing like that they're just they're just so free if if you can do it well i'm sure that you could just get dragged mm. through the great white sharks and be bait but i also think that if you got it down they just the way they're skipping off waves and cruising around just looks really free and and amazing yeah awesome um final question dana your favorite moment from the tokyo olympics or paralympics Oh my gosh. Um, I'm actually going to pull out one from Beijing. Um, so just the recent winter Olympics, uh, just because it's definitely way just kind of, yeah, just resonated with me and was like, just, yeah, incredibly memorable. So I still do a little bit of consulting with uh, Canadian Olympic sport. And, um, I was working with, um, one of our speed skaters and, um, I, I wasn't watching as much as I, as I usually do just cause of work and time zone changes. And I woke up in the morning to a message from a couple of other uh, Canadians who I work with. And they're like, you know, she just won the fir- Canada's first medal. So I go online and searching it all. And I, it was, and just to have like your first, um, I guess just exposure to be somebody thanking you. Cause usually nutrition and stuff, you get dropped off the radar. You're not, you know, no one really talks about how nutrition, I mean, sometimes it happens, but more often than not, there's other components that fold into performance that get mentioned when athletes are getting interviewed and everything. So I think um, just, yeah, in a way, like being able to contribute to a performance directly and also it just being recognized that it actually impacted performance on this stage. And then also um, that same athlete being uh, Canada's first double medal for for Beijing and, you know, kind of reliving that all over again. And um, that, was, that was probably my favorite moments. And then watching watching the big air, like just how far sport has come. And my, my son's on the free ride team. And so seeing it on the little level and then also just seeing what these athletes are doing now on their skis and snowboards and how fast and how far sport has grown in regards to winter sport is also just absolutely mm. incredible. Yep. What about you, Dave? So there, I wasn't at the, I went to five Olympic games and I was not at, you know, um, Beijing for the Winter Olympic Games or Tokyo. In Tokyo, one of the last things I did at the um, AIS before I left was um, we put together a, a, an integrated combat center. So um, boxing and Taekwondo and wrestling and Judo would all come together. And that sport is really minor in um you know, in the USA or in Australia, they hadn't won any medals. And 
there's a lot of metals up for grabs. So we put this thing together and we're recruiting and running talent ID and stuff. And so that combat center has now been kind of incorporated into its own, it's kind of like an Australian winter institute. So it's not an AIS program. It's got its own, you know, kind of governing uh, group and body. And this um, boxer, Harry Garside, who um, basically broke like a 33-year drought and he won a, a medal, I think it was a bronze medal, in boxing at the Olympic Games. And it was just another fun one that people said, like, there's no way Australians can win medals in the combat sports. We're just so, it's so small and we're not organized and it's so grassroots. And it's like, it's just so fun when you see that happen. And then at the, the, the fun part about the Winter Olympic Games or that skeleton medal for me, that was fun was everyone that I hadn't talked to in years, like Jason Goldburn and um, Angus Ross and, um, you know, uh, Nicola Bullock, who was a PhD student working that project. Everyone started social media like, oh, my God, WTF. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it felt and like Jackie doesn't even know me in the weirdest twist of events when I was in Canberra. My dentist was Dr. Nericott, and we spoke about the skeleton project. And he was a two-time Olympian. He, for Australia, had been a sprinter and a bobsled pusher. And he's one of Australia's only two Olympians. And I would talk to him about the project, and he would, while he's working on my teeth, you know, he was telling me about, oh, that's a great idea, whatever. It's his niece became the girl that went into the program that was a remnant of the big program that won the medal. I just thought. And we were all like, Jacqueline wouldn't even know who we are. And there's all of us in the back. We're all like, woo! <laughs> we're so excited. Yeah. That was so much fun. So yeah. those are probably some fun moments. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you both so much for your time. It's been great to have a chat to you about all things wearables and particularly continuous glucose monitors. Um, yeah, I think people will find this really helpful and help them when they think about it and when they see you know marketing around these sort of products. And I guess, as you said, um, some of the stuff online are about the use or misuse of some of these products as well. So, yeah, thanks so much, both of you. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah. That was great, Alex, except uh, all I can say is my head's spinning a little, so I, I think I need you just to, to summarise um, some of the key messages. Yep, no worries. Well, certainly a lot of fun with both Dana and Dave. Uh met Dave quite a few times before in terms of uh, various events where he's spoken at. He's always good fun to catch up with and, <laughs> and never met Dana before, but um, always sort of been aware of her and her work and, and all the great stuff that she does. So our question was, can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition? Um, well, I guess the first thing is there's a lot of information out there around continuous glucose monitors. There's a lot of hype. Um, something that's, I guess, relatively new in terms of its accessibility to athletes. It's been around, obviously, for diabetes for a long time, but its use for athletes without diabetes is quite new. And so you do have to be really careful in this space. And we've talked about this before in previous episodes about, you know, it's one thing to be an early adopter when it comes to smartphones or computer technology, but when it comes to something related to human biology, that's quite a different matter altogether. And so you do need to sift through a lot of the BS to try and work out where uh, the reality lies often. I guess the first thing to to realize is that you're not measuring blood glucose, you're measuring interstitial glucose. Um, and so they may be slightly different. Generally at rest and in people with diabetes, there's a pretty good correlation there. Um, but what we're starting to see from some of the research now during exercise is that there can be some differences between blood and interstitial glucose. And so uh, as Dave, I think, mentioned 
that's not necessarily a problem as long as you don't use one as a substitute for the other or mix and match readings between the two um, as long as you understand that interstitial glucose could be different um, and it needs to be interpreted in a different way and means something slightly different to what glucose you know floating around in your bloodstream means potentially um, is it a real-time fuel gauge well i guess the the fact is it doesn't measure the amount of fuel stored in the tank so to speak it's not a fuel gauge in that sense um, and it's not measuring the rate of fuel use you know how open the throttle is either um, you know you measure that by sticking a gas mask on and measuring oxidation of carbohydrate so it's not really measuring either of those things it's kind of i guess if you were to draw that kind of car analogy probably the best analogy i could give is it's kind of measuring how quickly the fuel's flowing through the fuel line between the fuel tank and the engine mm-hmm. um, but even that's probably not a great analogy um, but it definitely doesn't give you an indication of you know how much glycogen how much carbohydrate stored in your muscle um, you know it, it might react when you run out of carbohydrate um, but as dana said you know in most most instances you know if if you're going to bonk or hunger flat or something you're going to know about it anyway you don't need a glucose monitor necessarily to tell you that um as dave said we also still don't really understand what a normal interstitial glucose should look like during exercise for high performance uh what is considered too high for optimal performance or too low for optimal performance whether that differs from person to person so um that that makes it really hard to interpret this data at the moment in terms of saying you're in an optimal range we don't actually know what that optimal range is and even if it's the same for each person or it's different from person to person we just there's just not enough research in this area yet to be able to tell us any answers to those kind of questions um as dana said uh with continuous glucose monitors just like we talked with trent stellingworth a few weeks ago about um you know using training data to inform your nutrition you really need to have a question that you're setting out to answer before you add the technology the technology isn't going to ask the question you still have to ask the question yourself and then use the technology uh, as it is appropriate or not uh, to help you answer that question so what is it that you're actually looking for what are you trying to find out Um, and then when you get that data is it actually reflecting whatever it is that you you're trying to get to Um, and when you get that information or that feedback is it something that you can actually take action on is it something that you can actually change? Because if it's not, it's kind of just junk data. It's it's like, I guess, strapping on a heart rate monitor to commute to work when you're not following any structured training program. You get this data back, it doesn't really tell you anything useful. Um, it just sits and gathers dust in your training peaks or wherever you're uploading your, your data to. Um, that said, we did talk to Dana about, I guess, some of the cases where she may use um, continuous glucose monitoring in, in regards to nutrition. Uh, and she talked about, you know, potentially highlighting some of the underfueling practices in some of the cyclists that she's worked with, uh, where, you know, that that glucose has tended to drop during exercise. Again, if it's a full-on bonk, you're going to know that you don't need a glucose monitor, but uh, maybe if it's a more subtle variation of that, then that might be helpful. Um, she talked about using it potentially as a body fat loss tool. Um, so looking at uh, probably more sort of portion size control at meals to rather you know to prevent overeating by looking at the, the rise in glucose after a meal and, and trying to target sort of a, a smaller rise in glucose as a feedback tool on how much you're eating potentially uh, but that'll obviously vary depending on the type of food that you're eating and the, the glycemic index and all that kind of thing um the other thing to remember also is if you're in cycling it is actually banned in competition in uci sanctioned cycling events so even at club level that would be uh, a no-go but it can be used in training 
Uh, we also need to be careful, I guess, when we're using these sort of things, um, when we're looking at things like fueling, overfueling, underfueling, um, like we talked about with with food tracking apps and things. You, you know, you want to avoid the obsessive nature of that, and uh, I think we briefly touched on that that it may not actually be a good thing for some people, and and may um, sort of exacerbate people down that path of disordered eating in some cases, which is obviously not ideal. Um, so I, I think guess as you would sort of put all of that together, as Dave mentioned, um, you know, there may be some uses for continuous glucose meters. We probably don't have enough data yet to really build the, those use cases for it. Um, but as he said, it's likely it's going to be the same questions with the same answers that we've always had, but perhaps just a different language or a different way of answering the same questions. Um, and I guess in that case, it's like, well, is it worth the expense? The fact that you've got to put this thing onto your arm and have it there for a period of time and then collect all this data, if there's a simpler and cheaper um, way to answer the same question, is it really worth it? So is it a fuel gauge? Probably not really. Um, and so we just need to be a little bit careful about that kind of thing. And then finally, you know, just like we talked about last week across the menstrual cycle, you know, don't forget to pay attention to how you're feeling. You know, it's, it's all well good to have all these data, all these zeros and ones, but, you know, never think that the zeros and ones will be smarter than you in terms of how you're feeling um, and even basic things like your perceived exertion and, and those sorts of things when you're out exercising can give you a lot of really useful information um, and cost you absolutely nothing to do um, and, and tells you right in the real time of, of what's going on. Uh, and then finally, as Dave said, you know, we can't be dependent on wearables. You know, they can fail, the battery can die, the sensor could fall off, you know, all sorts of things could happen. It doesn't sync properly to your Garmin. Um, and then if you don't want to be reliant on these kind of things um, to, to tell you how to pace yourself or how to train or how to race, uh, you need to learn to do that yourself. These tools can give you feedback along the way and maybe improve things incrementally, uh, but we don't want to be too dependent on them. Good one. Good summary. Um, I like it. Uh, so next episode, 33B, can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition? So same question now, but who have we got? Yeah, we've got uh, author and um, runner Alex Hutchinson from Canada. So many people might know Alex uh, if you've read his amazing book, Endure which looks at, I guess, some of the, the sports science around uh, endurance exercise performance and fatigue and what ultimately limits performance in endurance exercise. It's an amazing read for those of you who haven't read it before. Uh, I read it recently um, and it was was a great read with you know quite a few people that, that I'm not necessarily know personally, but um, have you know read a lot of their work and things over the years. So it was, was a great story to, to read. Um, but Alex also uh, has written previously for Runner's World, uh, now writes for Outside Online. Um, and he's recently gone through a period of actually wearing a continuous glucose monitor himself um, for, I think, about a month or so, uh, and then documenting his experiences with that. So we're going to have a chat to him a bit about that. Um, certainly wasn't doing any sort of high-level marathon running or anything at the time that he was wearing it, but he'll give us, anyway, his experiences and feedback around that. And we'll have a talk to him more generally about, I guess, some of the interest and hype around um, continuous glucose monitors and, and even wearables and technology in sports science more broadly. So it'll be great to, to hear from Alex. Yeah, awesome. Um, and also... Um, just in terms of if people can give us a bit of feedback in terms of how they're finding the 
infographics that we've recently been posting. Uh, are you finding it useful or not useful, too long, don't understand them? Um, yeah, if you can just uh, shoot us a message and, and let us know what you think of them, if they're worthwhile, yep. uh, that would be so, awesome. We'd appreciate it. Yeah, so they're the reels that go up on Instagram and then we've got the threads um, that are sort of a mixture of text and sometimes a few graphics or links to previous podcast episodes on Twitter as well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you can reach out to us at the Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter and you can listen to us on all your popular podcast platforms and we would love for you to subscribe and tell your friends about us um, because, yeah, the the more we can spread the the word and get some more education out there, the, the better. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, we'll finish up here, Steph. Oh, the final thing I almost forgot is our podcast episode next week will be a day late. Um, yes. And that's because setting up our interview with Alex, he's actually away on holiday. So we had to wait till he gets back from holiday because he's going to somewhere where there's not much internet coverage and we don't want to disturb his holiday either. Um, and so we're going to wait till he comes back, but it means that we're not going to be able to turn around the podcast episode in time uh, to get it out on the usual first thing Thursday Australian time. So mm-hmm. I think it'll be out it's either Friday or Saturday, but um, it'll, yeah, it'll only be one or two days delayed. So apologies for that, but I think yeah. it'll be well worth it. Um, I've heard a few of Alex's podcasts before and obviously, as I said, read his book and, um, yeah, he's great value. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, until next time. See you then. See ya. <laughs>